Esther chapter 2, verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the books of the annals in the presence of the king. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with these people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the month of the royal secretaries were summoned, they wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text was, of the edict was to be issued as a law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Susa was bewildered. This is God's word. Vince, 
Thank you, Vince, for reading that. Let's give Pastor Vince a hand for uh, all those names and places, and uh, good job on that, all those months. Um, Hey, everybody. Good morning. Glad to be with you. I'm Pastor Kenny. I always say this when I'm on double duty. I'm the same one who was here five minutes ago. Uh, It's me. Um, And uh, I am glad to have the honor of continuing our series in Esther today. Um, Have you guys ever been punished for doing something good? Nope? Okay, well, we don't have to preach. No, No, I I heard a few yeses. Have you ever um, heard the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished? Yeah, kind of cynical, right? You guys can answer the questions I'm saying. It's kind of cynical, right? (laughs) All right, there we go. All right. Making sure that I can hear you all. No, um, it's kind of cynical, but it's also kind of true. If you've uh, been around a little while, you've seen, you've felt the sting of trying to do something with good intentions, trying to do the right thing, and yet not, instead of getting rewarded for it, getting punished for it. Um, I remember a time in my life, a pretty succinct time where it felt like, that was happening uh, to me and to a group of my friends. Uh, some of us, um, as you know, worked, used to work for a recycling. Some of you know, n- not all of you know, so I'm going to tell a little bit. We used to work for a recycling nonprofit. Uh, Mike did, Vince did, I did, a um, bunch of other people volunteered and, and, and did work for it. And, and we had this vision of kind of like taking... Uh, using recycling to, to bring redeeming work in the city. And so we opened downtown's first um, recycling center that was actually in downtown. And um, we were able to employ people who hadn't been able to get jobs in over a decade, you know, either because they had a record or they didn't, um, uh, you know, they just couldn't get hired. Um, we were able to do a lot of good. Um, and also most of our clientele was people who were homeless. And so we were able to kind of every day work with, work with people, hear their stories, listen to people, pray for people. We saw people get saved on the lot, uh, on the recycling center lot. It was just a really cool thing. And um, uh, even though we were doing good, there was a lot of different types of opposition that, that we came up against. Everything from, you know, in a back alley, someone with a pipe threatening us for taking the recycling uh, that we were supposed to be taking, we had a contract for, um, to... Um, a little bit, that's, that's kind of scary. Um, but the other thing was um, we had, there, there was a particular person who lived close to our lot who really didn't like it, who really didn't like the clientele that we were bringing. And this person made it her mission to get us shut down. And she knew people. She, she um, was married to someone who had a lot of political clout, she uh, was involved with her HOA, so she organized her HOA, and we got noise complaints, and a lot of them were false because we got noise complaints during hours when we were closed, but they still went against our record. And then um, this person pulled strings, and we had 13 different inspections from county and city in, a, in 14 days. So, man, every, every day, someone... And, um, and eventually you know, basically succeeded. We had to move, you know, all the way to the other side of town. I don't know what's going on with my mic, but I'm just going to keep talking. And it might sound, I don't know if I'm a little too loud. If it seems a little too loud, we can bring it down. Okay, we're okay? Okay, good. I'm just not used to my voice. Okay, 
Um, anyways, eventually this person was successful. We had to move, and it was less than a year before we were out of, we were out of business. And I remember during that time just this uh, anger. <laughs> like, those of you who know me know that my nostrils flare uh, at will whenever I'm angry. And I think, I think my nostrils were flared for like four months. Like, it was just... <laughs> Every day we would be working, and it was, it was dirty work. It was hard work. And I remember, you know, we'd be moving these recyclables around, and I'd look up at the apartment complex and just scowl and try not to hate this person for what they did. I'm trying to do the right thing, God. We're trying to do something good in this city, God. What is going on? Why are we getting punished? Why are the people who have power against us instead of for us? And today, the passage that Vince read through, the passage that we're at in this series, it has a little bit of that. It has a little bit of um, doing the right thing, but not getting rewarded for it. And instead of getting rewarded for it, getting punished. So as we unpack that first, I want to look a little bit at the story that we read, um, because I know it's a lot of different words. And maybe some of you are really familiar with the whole story of Esther, and maybe some of you have never heard of Esther. And um, then I want to look at um, a few uh, brief points after that. So the story of Esther, we're on the third week of this series. Um, We're in the Persian kingdom. We're in the Persian kingdom. 2,500 years ago, all right? So the U.S. has been a nation almost 250 years. This is 2,500 years years ago, the the historical narrative that we're reading. The Jewish people have been in exile. They've been taken over, first by the Babylonians and then by the Persians. Um, They are not in their homeland of Israel. They are in um, the capital of this Persian kingdom. Mordecai and Esther are Jewish. Esther was a, a Jewish orphan girl who, through some strange turn of events, um, i.e. God's providence. Um, she, becomes, she comes from an uh, orphan Jewish girl, not in her homeland, to queen of the most powerful empire in the world, uh, almost overnight. And Mordecai is her uncle and basically the father figure in her life who adopted her when she was orphaned and has been instructing her. And Mordecai, as the scene opened, he hears a plot that there is a plot to kill King Xerxes. And the guys who are plotting this are two eunuchs. How many know what a eunuch is? Okay, about half the crowd. I'll try to, um, yeah, try to explain it. And for those of you who don't know what a eunuch is, so imagine the king has a harem. He has concubines. He has a bunch of women that are part of his court. And he has uh, male servants that um, work around them, and he doesn't want the male servants to fall in love with the women that are there, or vice versa. And so what he would do is castrate these men. I said that. This is uh, mostly adults in here, right? So, okay, good. He would castrate these men, and that uh, that way they would serve um, and not be a threat to him. We tracking? Okay, so there's two eunuchs who have a, a plot to kill the king. Now, we're not told the reason why they want to kill the king, but I can think of at least a couple for each eunuch. Um, Not going to speculate, but there's a plot to kill the king. And then Mordecai overhears it somehow. And Mordecai all of a sudden has a choice. 
He can tell the king. He, he has access. I mean, Esther is the queen. She's one of the closest persons to the king. Or, I mean, does he have to? I mean, he's not Persian. Maybe he has a grudge against the Persian king. Maybe this is the time we finally get to see this horrible ruler overthrown. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard me talk about the kind of reign that Xerxes had. But you know what Mordecai does? He chooses to do the right thing. And he tells um, Esther, who tells the king and the conspirators, it's investigated and they find out and um, the conspirators are impaled. Um, The translation uh, might say that they were hanged Um, But the way the Persians would do that is literally hang you on a tree. Um, So they're impaled, um, and they write it down in the history books. And so now what? We think, well, the king should honor, right? The king should, that his life just got saved, right? He would reward Mordecai, right? He's the one who told. And um, the king does reward someone. He does honor someone in the next verse, but it's someone else. It's not Mordecai. Mordecai gets skipped over. And so you end chapter 2, and Mordecai does this great thing, and it's recorded. But then you get into chapter 3, and the first verse says, after these events, so it's, this is a few years later, um, scholars say about five years later probably, King Xerxes honored Haman, not Mordecai, Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. If that feels jarring, if it feels a little bit wrong, if it feels like, hey, That's not fair. It's supposed to. That's what the author is wanting us to feel. The the Holy Spirit um, has a perspective on the events that happen in this life, and the Bible is supposed to introduce us to that. So if you feel like, hey, that's not right, um, that's what you're supposed to be feeling. Jesus is calling. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. So, fast forward a little bit. Haman gets honored. He's, he's this, at this super high position. And um, he's been com- it's been commanded by the king that everyone needs to honor him. He needs to be honored by all. When he walks into the royal court, you need to bow down. Well, guess who doesn't want to bow down? Uh, Mordecai. And after time and time again of Mordecai not bowing down, and, and again, we're not told in detail why he doesn't bow down, but he just doesn't. Um, Apparently, Mordecai doesn't even notice it at first. Isn't it funny how your ego works? Something that isn't actually hurting you, and then you find out about it, and then it feels like it's going to kill you. You guys know what I'm saying? Mordecai doesn't, I mean, uh, Haman doesn't even know that Mordecai is not bowing to him. But then when the other friends tell him, hey, do you know Mordecai's not bowing to you? He gets enraged. Interesting. Verse 6 says um, that it goes a little bit beyond uh, a regular rage. It says that he scorned the idea of only killing Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. A little much, (laughs) Haman. Um, What... And we'll get into this later why, but what Mordecai, what Haman desires here is nothing less of, nothing less than genocide, ethnic cleansing. He wants to say, it's not just what this Mordecai did against me. His whole people need to be punished and they need to be wiped out. And so he goes 
into this plant. I'm telling you guys, this is, um, you know, PG-rated sermon, okay? PG-13. You guys ready for that? Okay, cool. Um, so he goes, he goes into action on his plan to destroy all of Mordecai's people, to destroy all the Jews. And it says in verse 8 that he, he casts the pur, which is the lot or the dice. Um, and this is something, something that was common in that day. Actually, in Babylonian culture, they had this belief that the gods would get together in the beginning of the year and cast the lot, cast the pur to decide the fate and the destiny of human beings that year. And so Haman is doing what his religious beliefs tell him to do, and he's trying to decide on a date to destroy all the Jews. And he, he casts the lot. It gives him a date 11 months from now. Great. Plenty of time to plan. Now I just got to convince the king. He goes to the king. And if you're reading the story, you're thinking, hopefully the king is a good leader. Hopefully he's cool-headed. Hopefully he's, he's based on the facts. Hopefully he'll, he'll inspect uh, the desires of the people um, who are right around him, who want him to do certain things. Um, nope. <laughs> None of that. None of that. And Haman, Haman tells this. Haman even doesn't, doesn't even have to do much. He doesn't have to prove it. It's just half-baked, half-truth that he goes to the king with and says, you know, there's this people that are really peculiar. They have their own set of laws. They don't obey your laws. It's and then he tells a doozy. It's not in the king's best interest for you to tolerate that. <clears throat> Who just saved the king's life? Two Jewish people, right? So is it in the king's best interest to be dead <laughs> or alive? It's just an all-out lie. And the king, without even inspecting it, says... I gotta quit touching that. That's not what the king said, but that's what I said. Um, the king, without even expecting what is um, said by Haman, gives his permission. Haman had offered him a huge sum of money. He says, "Keep the money. Do with the people what you wish." Here's my signet ring. Here's the symbol of my authority. Send out the decree. So they send out a decree, which in that day they had this renowned postal system that is. Um, state-of-the-art, well beyond its time, where he can say a decree, and it's written down in every language in the kingdom, in the 127 provinces, and then they, they put, they, um, messengers take it on horses, and they go to designed routes, and then instantly this is law. 11 months from now, we're going to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. So the decree goes out, and in verse 15, this is how out of touch and messed up Haman and the king are. That they send out that decree, and they're so comfortable with it that they sit down to relax and have a drink. While the city, the capital city, is bewildered. So we've gotten more than one whole chapter in, in, into this passage today. And what are we left with? Um, it's, it's not exactly a feel-good story right here. <laughs> it, this, is, this, is, this is genocide. This is um, a plot for ethnic 
cleansing, and the people in power are toasting to celebrate their wicked plan. And you know, one of the things I say a lot that I appreciate about the faith that we have, about the Christian faith, is that it does not brush over the hard parts of life. It doesn't create this magical fairy tale story that doesn't deal with our actual world. And as I'm reading this story, and as I have explained a little bit of it to you today, it would almost be comical at the broad brushstrokes of like, he didn't kneel, and now he wants to kill everyone. It would almost be funny the way it's told if it wasn't describing the exact world that we live in. If it wasn't for Auschwitz and the Holocaust, if it wasn't for Rwanda and the Hutus and the Tutsis, if it wasn't for Kosovo in the 90s, if it wasn't for Myanmar and the Rohingya Muslims in the last year, we could laugh this off. But because this is our world, we would do better to learn from it than to laugh it off. Because this is the world we live in on the big scale, on those horrible atrocities that seem too big for us to tackle, and on the small scale. You see, the attitudes that, that, that make this kind of thing possible in the macro, in the big, are, they work the same way in the small. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's us or them. You're either for my tribe or you're against my tribe. You're either with us or you're against us. The cardinal sin is being unlike me and my tribe or my group. And if you are, there's not any forgiveness for that. We can't dialogue until you change. There's no rubric for grace and accepting that you have flaws just like I have flaws. There's no understanding that this evil world out here is a projection of the evil that resides in the human heart that each one of us battle with. And so we get up on our self-righteous molehills and say, well, I would never do that. And we look down our noses at each other. That's how it works when you're arguing over how to roll up the toothpaste, as Vince talks about, (laughs) in your home. And that's how it works when you're going to war. There's no grace or understanding. So in order to glean from this text, I know, um, I know it's a little uncomfortable right now. Um, thank you. Amen corner right there. In order to glean from this text, what I feel like God is saying to us as a church and, and to you as an individual, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at kind of three areas. One is the nature of the conflict. And then I want to look a little bit at the past and then at the promise. The nature of the conflict, the past, and the promise. So in order to understand the nature of the conflict, because it sounds a little off, right? Like Mordecai won't kneel, Haman wants to kill you all, (laughs) right? So in order to understand that, you have to understand that Haman is not just Haman. And Mordecai is not just Mordecai. Haman is introduced um, more than once as Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And Mordecai in chapter 1 is introduced as a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Kish. And so uh, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that there's layers of conflict that, that are going on between these two, but also that this represents to us in the scripture. So you've got the personal conflict where Haman's ego is hurt. Well, you didn't bow to me. You're going to pay. Um, And then there's the family conflict 
um, because Mordecai was from the family of Kish, which is King Saul's father, if you remember that in Israel's history, or if you don't, I'll tell you the cliff notes. And then Haman is an Agagite, which is King Agag of the Amalekites. And King Saul was actually ordered to carry out war on King Agag. And he didn't follow through on the Lord's instructions. Isn't it funny how those kind of sins come back to bite you? Um, but they had family conflict, right? That's, that we, we don't hear it when we read it, but if we were a Jewish reader a few thousand years ago, it would click. Oh, Agag and Kish. Okay, yeah. There's family conflict. So there's personal, there's family, and then there's national conflict. Because in Exodus 17, the Lord had said, you're always going to be at war with the Amalekites. And why did he say that? Because as soon as God in the Exodus had delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, took them from being slaves for 400 years, they, they weren't a people, and then they became God's people, and he led them across the sea on dry land, and then they have no food, and he gives them manna. They have no water, and he gives them water. And when they're at that vulnerable time, they have no land to call their own. They're wandering in the wilderness. The Amalekites decide that's the best time to attack them and to kick them while they're down, and to take advantage of them while they're vulnerable. So if you were reading this a few thousand years ago, you would immediately understand that this is not just two people who are having conflict. It's bigger than that, and then it's bigger than that, and then it's bigger than that. And I would suggest what all this is leading us to as we read this as believers is that there's a bigger area of conflict that this is reminding us of and representing, which is spiritual conflict. It points to the conflict that's gone on ever since the beginning of the story and goes all the way through the end of the story. Wait, this way. <laughs> Begins with the serpent in the garden and ends with the dragon in Revelation. I'm talking about the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Between God, who has always been good, and Satan and every evil force who has always chosen to rebel against God and chosen to lead others in that rebellion if they so choose. You know, it's, it's common. Jew, uh, the book of Esther is, is one of the most well-known books uh, for Jews, even currently today, for Jewish people, because they read it every year at the festival of Purim, which this, um, you heard me talk about Pur, the lot. That's, that's what this festival is based on. They read it every year, and whenever they read it, Whenever the name of Haman is said out loud, they read it communally with the whole group, everyone hisses like a snake and stomps. If you remember Genesis 3, where, where God says, that, um, says to, the, uh, to, the, to the serpent, there's going to be enmity between uh, people and you, and, and you will uh, strike its heel, but he'll stomp your head. Right? It's that picture of Haman represents more than just Haman. Haman represents... <laughs> I just heard a hiss. <laughs> <laughs> to stomp out evil. Here's what I'm getting at. The people of God have an enemy. As soon as you name the name Jesus over your life, you have you entered into a spiritual conflict that has been raging since way before you were born. If you are in Christ, there is a spiritual, might as well be a spiritual target on your back. 
And it may take many forms of expression. What I'm getting at is your walk with God does not take place in a vacuum. You know, our worldview doesn't have a lot of room for the spiritual. In our kind of Western secular worldview, in a secular worldview, there's not even room for God, right? It's just us and our choices, and uh, we're here by accident. And, and we don't like to think of things in life having spiritual influences behind them. But if we learn from what the Bible says, no, there is a spiritual battle. And there is a spiritual enemy, and you have an enemy. And the choices you make and the conflicts that you face don't happen in a vacuum without an enemy. You have an enemy. Jesus summed it up when he said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they might have a life and have it more abundantly. Amen? I'm not saying this to scare anybody. I'm definitely not saying this so we can start blaming the devil for everything. <laughs> that old testimony service. Well, the devil's been on my back all week. Bless his name. <laughs> kind of came out the wrong way. <laughs> I'm not saying this to scare us. I'm not saying that we need to start blaming the devil every time we get in a fight with somebody or every time somebody opposes us. Um, but I'm afraid that many Christians have forgotten that the spiritual life involves spiritual battles. Yeah. And we're involved in it. And it, sometimes it's very obvious, and sometimes it's so subtle we don't even notice it. We don't even notice that we're under attack. Jesus said his followers would face opposition. If you don't believe me, Take his word for it. John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the ones, the one who sent me. See, it's key there. He said, they'll treat you this way because of my name. We don't get to just be a jerk and then say we're facing spiritual warfare. <laughs> no, they'll treat you this way because you're following me. <laughs> right? Um, so Jesus said we'd face it. The apostles talked about it all throughout the New Testament. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, and this is key, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It may be flesh and blood that is opposing you, but your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Yeah. You guys hear that? When, when I was in that story in the beginning, when I was suffering for doing the right thing, and I looked up and was trying not to hate that person, you know what? My struggle was not with that person. My struggle was not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly realms. 2 Corinthians 10, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. King James says are not carnal. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Before I'm getting any further, I'm just trying to get at this. Maybe you're here and you need a reminder, there's a spiritual enemy who's out to get you. And it's everything from the obvious stuff to the really small stuff. You know, the obvious stuff is Christians, our brothers and sisters are facing persecution all over the globe. You know, in China in the last few weeks, they're, they're burning Bibles, they're shutting down churches, they're making people um, renounce their faith. It's the worst that it's been, uh, some say since the 80s, some say since the 60s for Christians in China. That's just one country so many places in the world, you, you'll be shot. You'll be cut off from your family. Your house will be burned down. I've met people whose house was burned down for preaching Jesus. In a couple weeks, we're going to have a guest speaker here from a part of the world that has experienced massive persecution just for believing in Jesus. And we're going to hear um, from them as they share. And you'll hear more about that in the next few weeks. But there's the obvious things where we have a spiritual enemy worldwide. And that's obvious and it's physical, but there's, there's the smaller things. There's the individual things where there's attacks on our health. There's attacks on our mental health. There's attacks on our families and strife in our families. There's attacks on our identity as Christians. There's pressure to just fit in and just assimilate. Just say that you have the same values of the culture and not the values that God holds up in his word. There's the pressure, like the, like the Japanese saying, the, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. That's the pressure that we face, to look at the issues, to look at God and his word through our cultural lens instead of looking at our culture through our, the lens of God's word. And then there's even community. There's groups of people. There's uh, political ideologies. There's oppressive groups. There's people who oppose you when you want to do something good. And the temptation is to say, my enemy is that person. My enemy is that group. And I need to match the hatred that they have shown me. But our, our, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Amen? We wrestle not against flesh and and blood. Mordecai suffered for doing good. And I think it's naive to think that we won't suffer if we aim to do good in this world. Jesus said a servant is not greater than his master. If Jesus, who never did anything wrong and only did good, was put to death for it. Why do we expect it should be breezy for us? Because we have good intentions. Amen. <laughs> so we got to understand the nature of the conflict. And when we do, I, how can you live? <laughs> what, what do we do? What do we do? When we look, if we focus on the darkness in the world, I know we don't always, and it's not always dark. It's, but when you focus on it, when you're surrounded by it, when you're in those times of life when you can't escape it, what do you do? How do you have hope? 
when you can't ignore it any longer, when, when evil is on your doorstep, when opposition is in everywhere you look, where your family's messed up, where your health's messed up, where your, relation, your friendships are messed up, when your self-worth is messed up, when you're full of shame, when you're full of guilt, what do we do? What attitude should we take? For that, I want to look to the past and the promise. As we look to the past, we see the providence of God. Once again, there's no mention of God in this chapter. There's no mention of God in this book. It might be a fair question again to be like, why are we preaching on this? (laughs) Because God is speaking to us through it, even though he's not mentioned. And as you read the turns of events, you read the sudden reversals, how how things are kind of coincidences, you see the fingerprints of God's providence. Some people say that coincidence is the secular word for providence. It's for God working his plan through all sorts of situations and things that seem out of control and decisions that other people make, and yet God is using it for his plan. And we see an aspect of that in this story in verse 12 where it says that Haman, when he got his His edict of death, his decree that we are going to kill, destroy, and annihilate, when he sent it out, he sent it out on the 13th of Nisan. I thought I was going to get a lot of applause right there. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Let's unpack that. Let's unpack why that's significance. Um, First of all, Nissan, Japanese car company. No, just kidding. Um, Nissan is, uh, here's why that is significant. Because the author at this point has been using Persian words. He's been using Persian dates. He's been using Persian months. Nissan is where he switches to a Hebrew timetable. Nissan is a Hebrew month. And Nissan is an important Hebrew month because Nissan is the month that God delivered the Jews from Egypt. Nisan is the month of Passover. And you know, the day of Passover is the 14th of Nisan. Haman sends out his edict of death on the eve of their deliverance. The eve of the time every year they look into the past and they remember how God delivered them. They look into the past and they remember, you know, God said he, was, he would be our God and we would be his people. And you know what? We were in slavery for 400 years and Pharaoh was a tyrant and he was evil and he made it worse and he made it worse and he made it worse. And when it could get no worse, you know what? God brought us out on the 14th of Nisan. And so we remember it and we look back that though we were not a people, he made us a people. When we had no hope, he gave us hope. When we had no food, he rained it down. When we had no water, he made it come out of a rock. When the Amalekites attacked us, when we were at our worst, he delivered us. And he gave us a land, and he gave us his law, and he made us a people. Sometimes the best hope for the present can be found in remembering God's deliverance in the past. Amen? Amen. That's the same for us. They say God's providence is best viewed in hindsight. As you look back over your life 
think I have a picture of something. I was going to bring one in, but I just brought a picture. It's a mirror. You guys ever seen one of those? I don't know. San Diego drivers. I don't really know if people use these. Um, <laughs> objects in mirror are closer than they appear. So here's the thing that's um, brilliant about a rear, rear view mirror. It's got a wider view because of the way it's shaped, and it gives you this bigger perspective. And so you can see more than you would just be able to see with a normal mirror as you look into the past. And it, but it also says objects in the mirror are closer than they appear because it's reminding you that, hey, what you're looking at back there is a little bit closer than you think it is. Might I suggest to you that God's providence works the same way? That we don't always see it. We don't always think about that he's sustaining and he's directing and he's working everything for our good and for his glory. We don't think about that when we're in the thick of it. Anyone else? You're going to admit that with me? When we're facing that conflict, when we're in that battle, when we're in that stress at work, when we're feeling that anxiety of that deadline, when we're feeling the devil rip apart our families, we're not thinking, you know what, God's in control. But when we look in the past, when we look back in our lives, we have a little bit wider perspective and we remember, you know what? God did something amazing back there. There was a time that was like this when I was hopeless and yet, you know what? He came through. Actually, he made a way out of no way. God's been good. But here's the other thing. We begin to remember that. But the other part is also true. We think that those events are further back than they are. They're closer And God's at work right now. And when we look at that mirror, that's meant to remind us God was in control then and God's in control now. God was fighting for my good then and God is fighting for my good now in this. I don't know all that God has brought you through here today, but I know that God has brought you through it all because you're here. God has been faithful to you. And would you take a moment and look back at the times in your lives when you did not know how you were going to make it, and yet God was faithful. Maybe you're facing that threat right now. Will you remember to look in the rearview mirror of your life? Will you remember to look... What looks like it will destroy you, God's going to use to deliver you. The devil would want to taunt you and say, hey, I'm taking you out this time. I know he worked in the past, but I'm taking you out. And God wants to remind you and say, look, I've delivered you before. I'll deliver you again. The enemy wants to destroy, to, to kill, to steal, to destroy you. And I'm here to give you life. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. When you're in Christ, you're more than a conqueror. Whatever a conqueror is in your situation, you're more than that in Christ. And maybe some of you today, you need your own Passover celebration. You need your own remembrance of what God has done in the past. He's going to save me again. He's done it in the past. That's what we do. That's what this is. (laughs) This is based on Passover. That's what the Lord's Supper is. We remember 
Jesus has already done the work to deliver me. He already put his body and his blood on that cross and said, it is finished. He has saved me. He has redeemed me. He has cleansed me. And he will do it again. He will do it again. We'll have a little time at the end. You guys can have your Passover celebration. But don't wait. Start now. Start remembering what God has done in your life. 13th of Nisan, this goes out. 14th of Nisan, they remember Passover. Even though they're bewildered, even though they're scared, even though they have fear, they still remember God's been faithful to us. And how would they respond? I don't know. We're, we're not told how they respond. They have 11 months to wait. You guys think about that? They have 11 months, and all they're sitting on is, is the past. God redeemed me before. Do I believe he's going to do it again? Do I believe he's going to come through again? I know he's done it in the past. And, and how do they act? Do they act fearful in those 11 months? Or do they have faith that allows them to have hope? And do they have a, a strong enough faith that allows them to pass out hope to other people? They're in between. That's where we are. That's where we are, church. We're in between the past where, where Jesus said it is finished on the cross and, and Revelation where he says it's done. We're, we're, the decisive battle has been won, but the war is still being played out in 2018. And we're part of it. How will we respond in these 11 months? 11 months. I'm not saying the Lord's coming back in 11 months. <laughs> start a new book series. 2019 reasons. The Lord's coming back in 2019. How will we respond when we're in between? We're in between the past deliverance and God's promise of future restoration. As we face the conflicts, as you face the conflicts that you have, we find hope as we look to the past, but we also find hope as we look to the promise of God's bright future. This is my last point, all right? It's a long one, but <laughs> just, it's not that long. Um, spoiler alert. Haman's plan to destroy all the Jews gets thwarted. Doesn't happen, okay? Don't let everyone else who's preaching in the series know that I told you the end of the book, but... Um, I'm assuming some of you guys have read it before. It doesn't happen. And we'll wait to the details um, until later. What looked like a death sentence to them, God actually uses to deliver them. Now, Christians, we, they, they didn't know the future. They just had a promise that God was with them. We don't know the future, but we have a promise. We have glimpses of it, and we have a promise of God's bright future. We have resurrection hope. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we of all people should be pitied most, 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ did raise from the dead. And to give us hope that we too will rise and that he will make a glorious end of all things. This week, uh, Hannah and I attended a funeral of her uncle, Uncle Cottrell. And um, uh, he had been on hospice for a few months and 
Um, he passed away last weekend, and just a just an incredible man, just an inspirational. He had such faith, I, I, and I, you know, you watch people describe him. Watch one of his neighbors and best friends just get up there and describe. Him. If I had one word to describe him, I would say faithful. And he gave all these examples and how he was always there to help start the car of the, the neighbor lady or how he gave fruit you know, from his trees to whoever walked by and how he was always talking to, uh, with people about Jesus. And, and I know Hannah and I, a few months ago, we went to visit him and, and we knew that he was coming near the end of his life and we went um, to visit him, to pray with him, you know, maybe if we had the chance to minister to him. And, and if you would have been there, my goodness, he just spent the whole visit pouring into us and talking about the Lord, and talking about how good God is, and, and just the faith that he had. And, and, you know, we went to pray for him at the end, but he prayed for us, and we left that place, and we were just, our faith was increased by being next to him. Because he had such a hope in Jesus, and even as he was dying, the faith that he had was powerful enough to give us hope and to give us Faith, and that's what we saw when we were at his service this week. And the reason he has that hope is because of the hope that Jesus gives us. You know, Jesus, Jesus suffered for doing good, but he rose again to defeat evil. He suffered. He suffered for him doing good, and he suffered for our wrongdoing. That's why he went to the cross, but he didn't stay in the ground. He rose again to defeat evil and to signify that we have hope that evil will one day finally fully be defeated and done with. I have a quote about Jesus' attitude towards suffering It says, evil, sin, suffering, and death were enemies that had spoiled the beautiful world he and his father had made, and he was angry. Neither did he look upon suffering as a friend to be welcomed, nor did he play the martyr who invited trouble. Rather, he saw suffering as a necessary part of putting right a broken and a fallen humanity, an experience neither to be denied nor to be sought. If he were to fulfill his mission, it could not be avoided. Some things he knew could only be accomplished through suffering. We should have suffered for doing wrong, but Jesus suffered for our wrongdoing. But he rose again. He rose again. He rose again. Our gospel community was reading through the CVR passage this week, and, and Wednesday turned out to be Revelation 21, one of my favorite chapters near the end of the book. And, and we were reading through it, and this is what we read. <laughs> and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Our hope rests in the fact that God is sovereign and that God is the ultimate judge and the only one who can make all things new and make all things right. That's the basis for why we are supposed to forgive and pray for our enemies. Pray for the people who hate us. Romans 12, 19 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And to the degree that we trust God to be judge is the degree to which we will look at others in grace or we'll try to be their judge. If you struggle with God's justice in the eternal sense, you'll struggle to give grace now, and you won't be able to fight for true justice. But when you've experienced God's grace, you trust his eternal justice, then you can extend grace to others. There's a quote from Miroslav Volf says this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. And you know, he had the right to say that because he was a Croatian who suffered from the Serbian army in Kosovo. And yet he was a Christian and said we have to pray for our enemies and forgive people and show them the love of Christ. We sit in between. I'm closing with this. We sit in between. We sit in between what God has done for us, what Christ has done for us on the cross, the salvation he's given us, and all the, temp- all the temptations, all the battles, all the spiritual conflict that we face right now, and the future hope that God has declared for us. What are we going to do? Are we going to be people who walk around in anxiety and fear, as I'm so guilty of? Are we going to doubt that God's in control, that his providence is good? Are we going to doubt that he's a good judge and that he has the right to judge? Are we going to doubt that he's actually going to make all things new and he's going to punish those who who murder without repenting? Are we going to believe it or not? Because if we do believe it, we have hope. And we, not just for ourselves, we get to be dealers in hope. We get to say this world is headed towards something amazing and you can be part of it. And Jesus is leading us to it. We haven't found hope anywhere else, but he rose from the dead and he told us to worship him and follow him and that we would too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for today, for your word. Thank you for the ways that you challenge us and that you speak to us. God, we live in 
a tumultuous time. We live surrounded by evil that is obvious and evil that is subtle. Um, we have a spiritual enemy. And yet, Lord, you are stronger. You are stronger and you are our hope. You have defeated the power of sin, death, and hell. And as our hope is in you, as we look forward to your promises, you grow hope in our hearts. And you make us the kind of people who aren't shaking in our boots, but who are standing and fighting for justice and extending grace because you've given us grace and because you are just. God, we love you. I invite you into the next few minutes as we respond. Pray that this would be a blessed time and that you would do the work in our hearts, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.